This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is Dr. David Vendrunen, Robert B. Stripple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of several books, including Bioethics and the Christian Life and Living in God's Two Kingdoms. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome to the island. Thank you. I guess it's nice to be here. Well, you've got five wonderful books with you that you'll be reading while you're waiting for your rescue. So there is hope of rescue. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. And if you're like the rest of your colleagues, you'll probably find a way to sneak more than five books on the <laughs> We're stipulating with everyone that uh, the Bible is a given. Okay, thank you. We've allowed the English Bible, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek New Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament. So those are all stipulated. That's generous. Thank you. Well, we assume that as Christians, you would want to have those resources. So beyond those texts, what five books would you want with you on the desert island? Okay. Do you want me to list them all right now, or do you want to go one by one? We can go one by one. Okay. Well, let's go chronological order, I guess. All right. I'm going to go first with the Iliad and the Odyssey. I'm going to count that as one because I'm sure there are editions that have both. Okay. (laughs) That's fine. I'm sure there are. Okay. I don't own one, but I'm sure there is. There almost certainly is. Yes. So, yeah, that's first. Uh, Of course, uh, Homer, the great uh, Greek poet of old, these famous uh, stories about uh, the Trojan War and... And the wine Red Sea and... And Odysseus's long journey home. And what is it that attracts you to the Iliad and the Odyssey? Is it the style, the story... Well, I think certainly both of those things. You know, I like good literature. I like novels. I like things that tell stories. I think most people do. And it's hard to find better stories than the Iliad and the Odyssey. They are great classic stories. And certainly the style, there is there's something obviously very noble about this. Is two of the foundational texts in all of Western literature. And beyond that, I think there is a sense that in order to understand really the course of Western history, you need to know something about classical civilization and the stories of the Greek heroes and the Greek gods and you don't find any better place to find that, I think, than the Iliad and uh, the Odyssey. So I think these works combine an amazing storytelling ability, an amazing style, and this, I think, great insight into this sort of heroic culture, which is one of the great pagan attempts to try to understand human life and to, and to understand human meaning. And uh, for all of its errors, it was, I think we might say, a sort of a noble pagan attempt to do that and to try to understand that better would be worth many hours on a desert island. I think. It's been it's been a while since I've read them, so it'd be good to get to them again. When did you first read them? I believe high school. I think I was familiar with the general story before that, but I don't think I actually read them until high school. The reason I ask is I'm picturing a room full of high school students, and the teacher announces, uh, this semester you'll be reading, and then among the titles were the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I imagine that at least some of the students grown inwardly, maybe outwardly. What was your first response when it was announced that you'd be reading these? 
I have no idea. I am much younger than you, but that's still a long time ago. Well, I ask because I remember in ninth grade being assigned the Odyssey and thinking, oh my, what is this? I loved reading. I loved stories, novels like you. But I remember uh, taking it home and dutifully reading it and becoming really taken with it. I thought this was a marvelous story. And I was so surprised that I liked it and that I didn't want to stop reading it. And so I had a complete reversal from the beginning of my experience with the book to the end of my experience the book. And I'm just wondering when you read it as a young man, how it affected you. Evidently, it left a mark. It left a mark. Yeah. I, I can't remember my reaction, but I think there, you know, there's a certain sense in which, you know, how could a high school boy not like stories about the war and the long journey, you know, the adventures on sea? I mean, these are things that you'd think high school boys would love. Uh, you know, they talked about a, a lot recently about how Harry Potter has, you know, sort of inspired kids to, to read. Boy, you'd think that reading Iliad and the Odyssey would inspire a lot of young people to read. They're, they're exciting stories. Okay. What's the next text? Or collection of texts. Yes, uh, uh, the next one will just be one, just okay. just one book. All right, and we've, and we've 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 stipulated in other episodes that you're allowed to have multi-volume collections. Although Calvin's commentaries on the New Testament, that's too much. You can't have that with you on the island. Gotcha. I'm going to go with continuing in the chronological order. Augustine's City of God. Augustine, as I'm sure most listeners know, the the great theologian, of the uh, fourth and fifth century, and really, I mean, he wrote obviously many extremely important theological works. But I think they have to be considered his magnum opus, uh, The City of God. I, I'm sure you get asked once in a while, you know, what's the best book on theology ever written? And that's a hard question to answer. But I think you can make a good case that Augustine's City of God has got to be there in the conversation. And if I was pressed to pick one, I, I might well pick that one. It's as foundational as any other Western text or text in the Western Christian canon. It's hard to think what other text would be more important for shaping the subsequent thought of the Western church anyway. In some ways, it's an interesting text to read after reading some sort of classical text like Homer, because Augustine spends a big part of that work just sort of reflecting on pagan culture, you know, the Roman culture that he knew growing up. And Augustine had such a great fertile mind. I mean, he was sensitive to, in some ways, the glories of that culture and the virtues of a sort that are exhibited in classical culture. And yet, of course, he's analyzing this as, as a Christian convert, as a Christian theologian. And he also sees the vanity of the quest for meaning and virtue in classical pagan life. And so you, you have that element, especially the first part of the City of God, that's kind of laborious. I mean, it's not a quick, easy read, but has so many fascinating elements to it. It really turns into sort of a proto-biblical theology, to, to use the kind of terminology that we would use today, where he really begins from the beginning of Scripture, and he takes us through the new creation and reflects on the movement of redemptive history and, along the way, explores so many important theological issues, and he, he wrestles with things so profoundly. And certainly with, with my own interest in Christianity and culture kinds of issues, you know, the way that he identifies the city of God and the city of man and their interaction in this world, and certainly there's never been a more important theological work written on Christianity and culture. In some ways, we're just trying to come to grips with that, and we're working Working with variations of Augustine City of God. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Is there a particular place in the work that you find particularly powerful or effective? I ask this because I can imagine someone going to a bookstore or ordering a copy of The City of God from the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, and here it comes in the mail, and they begin reading it, or they take a look at it, and they think, oh my. This is more than I bargained for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So are there particular places? 
is? Well, I can completely see different people finding different points particularly attractive. I think for me, the place that I have gone back to most frequently, and again, it's been a long time since I've read the book as a whole. It's been a very long time. So the Desert Island would be a good excuse for that. But I think probably book 19, where Augustine is, he's really wrestling with where does where does the commonality and the distinction lie for believers as they're living in this broader world full of non-Christians? Does our distinction lie in the way we dress, in the language that we speak, in sort of the ordinary customs that we follow in civil society? Or is there something else that really marks the distinction? And so here he's wrestling with the idea of the church here on pilgrimage and its identity. And I find many parts of Book 19 there just very profound, very thought-provoking, especially for my own interest with the Christianity and culture issues. Okay, you've been on the island for a few days, time maybe for a few weeks, time is passing, and you decide to take up another volume. What would it be? Continuing to move ahead chronologically, I have to have a big jump here, but I'm going to go with uh, Shakespeare's collected writings. I do have on my shelf at home one volume. It is in one volume. Yeah, it's heavy, but I don't know why it wouldn't count. It's fine. I'm just amused at the creativity of my brethren, finding ways to uh, smuggle multiple volumes with them. Steve Ball wanted to take his entire library on his back. Well, this is one volume. Yeah, go for it. It's not cheating at all. And are there, again, this is a massive work. with lots of different kinds of literature. Well, it's really the plays that interest me more than some of the sonnets. Or, uh, But I would have to think more. I'm not sure where I would start. Maybe I would try to read some of the plays that I haven't seen. I didn't grow up going to the theater, and I didn't have a particular interest in that. Who knows what they're doing in American high schools these days. But we had to read a couple Shakespeare plays in high school, and I may have seen one or two along the way. But my wife liked the theater, and we've made an effort since we moved here to this area to try to take advantage of the Shakespeare Festival they have down in San Diego every summer and to try to see a play or two as a family. And I've really grown to appreciate that and really enjoy that a lot. And it really is an amazing thing, what he was able to produce. In a way, similar to Homer, I mean, very interesting stories. But even beyond that, his use of language is just absolutely amazing. I remember hearing a statistic of the number of words in his vocabulary. It was just absolutely astounding. And just the way he uses phrases. If you didn't know better, you'd think he uses a lot of cliches, but he's actually making up these sayings. They're cliches because people borrow them from him. Now, they're cliches now, Yeah, but they weren't then. He made them up, and that's just amazing. And I think also the range of characters that he portrays who have various virtues and various vices, there's just a real insight into human nature in regard to love and power and jealousy and the things that make people tick and the very noble things people will do and the very terrible things people will do and how tragic flaws can become exaggerated under certain circumstances. So, I mean, all these things are in both the comedies and and the tragedies. It's just a very profound insight into human existence, the human condition, and done so in a way that's just quite amazing. I love the comedies, particularly, but at least I'm attracted to the comedies more than the dramas, I suppose. It's remarkable how well the dialogue holds up, particularly when it's well-performed. Reading them is different than watching them. I've not been a very successful reader of Shakespeare, but I enjoy watching it performed. I haven't spent a lot of time reading the plays. So maybe I don't know quite exactly what I'm getting myself into by bringing them. I would rather be able to see the plays and to read them. You could act them out yourself. You could perform different parts. That would be one way to pass time on a desert island. But, you know, there is one thing that would be an advantage of reading is that because it is an older style of English, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I see a Shakespeare play, I don't get everything. I mean, there are things that get by me. Sure. Unless you spend a lot of time 
time reading 16th century English. That's true. But but if you don't and you see, you know, one or two of these a year, there are things that kind of slip by so you can have a little more time on a desert island to go back and read stuff. And if your edition had a little uh, glossary in the back, that might be useful. That's true. Very good. And as you're acting it out, there's no one there to laugh at you except the dolphins. And <laughs> who knows what they're saying? That's true. All right. So after Shakespeare, what are you reading? As I was thinking about which five books to choose, I thought it's probably good if I have a book I haven't read before, or at least haven't read most of it, because if I just bring books I've already read, I don't know, I've already read them. I I need to have something to expand a little bit. So I'm going to go with a book that I've actually just started reading recently, but I haven't read much of it, but I'm quite intrigued by it. And it's uh, Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. Robert Burton was a 17th century Englishman, and this Anatomy of Melancholy is something like what we would refer to as depression. But he's not just analyzing melancholy. He's analyzing basically the entire human condition from the lens or from the angle of melancholy, from which, as I understand, he actually suffered in his life. And there have been a lot of great thinkers in subsequent centuries who have looked back at this work and said, this is one of the best books ever written. It's an enormous work, by the way. So this will take a lot of time, which is good on a desert island. In what state will you be when they discover you by the time you're done? You mean, will I have melancholy or not? Yes, exactly. Well, I think by working hard at this book, I will help to avoid melancholy because, you know, the harder (laughs) you work, the less likely you are, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I've, by God's grace, I've never struggled with depression. So it's not because I have a personal interest in trying to understand melancholy, but what he's really doing is looking at the human condition and really what makes us work as human beings. And as, as some of my comments from previous books have indicated, as someone who teaches anthropology and teaches ethics, I have a real interest in a sense, how do we work as human beings and what is character all about. And I would like to do some serious research and writing in the future on virtue. And this is the kind of work that seems to offer a whole lot of grist for reflection on those sorts of things. When you say anthropology, you don't mean the course the listener may have taken in university. Sociological anthropology, you mean another kind of anthropology. Good. Yeah, that's right. I'm talking about theological anthropology. We have as part of our systematic theology curriculum here at the seminary, and this would be typical of any Reformed seminary. You can have a course on the doctrine of man or theological anthropology in which you're going to explore what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to have body and soul? Uh, what does it mean to have fallen into sin and to be totally depraved? So those are the kind of questions that we look at in uh, the doctrine of man course that we teach here at the seminary. How did you come upon Burton? And I confess, I've never heard the title. My interest has peaked. I've just run across it here and there. I remember some time ago reading a novel by Robertson Davies, a fairly well-known Canadian novelist who... um, in one of his books, one of his main characters was fascinated by this book, and I sort of made note of it, but I hadn't taken the time to pursue it. And then just recently, and honestly, I can't even remember where I saw the reference recently, but I saw it again, and there was some very positive comment about the fascinating character of this book. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to pick it up and give it a try. So I've just started that recently, and I guess I'll spend some of my time on the desert island figuring out whether it's worth the time. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu 760-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church
As you're on the ship before it is wrecked, you must have taken a rather large suitcase with you just to carry some of these volumes, or to carry all of them, I guess. I guess that's true. And if you get bored, you can always lift the books for exercise. <laughs> that's true. You want to be sure you don't get out of shape while you're on the desert island. Well, exactly. You don't want your rescuers to find you flabby. That would be embarrassing. Exactly, yeah. What were you doing there? And what's the last volume in your collection? Well, I wish I could end on a, on a profound note, but I'm going to have to choose a volume that has to do with golf. There's some really wonderful volumes. I'm not an expert on sports literature generally. I don't read a lot of sports literature, but I bet it'd be difficult to find any sport that can boast some of the really good literature. A lot of great baseball literature. Yeah, but golf has a lot of very interesting books written about golf from a lot of different angles. Which is appropriate, actually. It is. If the listener is a golfer, then he'll understand. Yeah, I think it's good to have certain kinds of distractions beyond just one's ordinary work, and golf is something that I like to do. I started playing young. I grew up across the street from a municipal golf course that I could play cheaply, and it was it was a great way to learn. And golf is a very difficult game, but it's also an extremely rewarding game if you develop enough skills to be able to do with some proficiency. I've continued to play since I was nine. And I mean, there have been periods of my life, sometimes fairly long periods where I've played kind of sporadically, but I do play regularly and enjoy the game. And there's a sense in which I think golf is a lot like life, except more so in that golf is the kind of game where there are a lot of unpredictable things. You know, there are times when you hit a great shot and it does not turn out well at all. There are times when you hit a terrible shot and it ends up turning out just fine. And yet over the course of time, you kind of get what you deserve. I mean, you, you really do get what you deserve. Meaning... Meaning, based upon what your skills are and upon how you're hitting the ball on a certain day, your score is going to reflect that. So overall, golf is, in theological terms, a covenant of works. It is exactly like a covenant of works. I think golf is one game where every single shot counts. Every single time you hit the ball, it counts towards your final score. It's not really that way in other sports. You mentioned baseball. If a batter hits a home run when he's up, it doesn't matter if if he swung and missed twice before he hit the ball in the park. I mean, that gets wiped out. That doesn't count. But if you swing and miss twice on the golf course... It counts every time. So I take it when you play, you keep score very strictly. There are no mulligans when you play with Vendrunen. That's pretty much so. I mean, I can't say that it's, <laughs> you know, it's not that there's never the time when I pick up that one and a half foot putt. And uh, Well, that's a gimme. So. Well, okay, there you go. I think it's fascinating, and I don't know quite how much to do with this, but really the origins of golf are in places where historically Calvinism had its biggest foothold. Of course, you know, most people identify Scotland as the home of golf, but modern golf as we know it probably had its origins in Holland. There was this game, Colfin, with a K, which a lot of historians think was actually somehow the organic predecessor of the game that came to be played in Scotland. Now, I don't know why Calvinists would have a particular affection for golf, except that it reminds us of how weak and how fallible we are and how we really need grace, because it's a game that's brutally honest with our weaknesses. It teaches you the greatness of your sin and misery, and also teaches you certain virtues, patience, humility, industriousness. Industriousness. You need to work at it, yeah. So anyway, I haven't told you a book yet. It's hard to pick one book on golf, but I'm going to go with a fairly recent book, and it's called True Link. An Illustrated Guide to the Glories of the World's 246 Links Courses. One of the things I find fascinating about golf is that every golf course is different. And that's really odd when you compare it to other sports. Can you imagine a basketball game being played, you know, where the rim is 13 feet above the floor and the free throw line's at nine and a half feet and there's a big sand hole at center court? I played on that court once, but anyway. Yeah, you probably did, but they're probably not playing, you know, the NBA championship on that court. And yet you find all sorts of different golf courses and 
and links courses refer to a particular kind of course. They're mostly found in Ireland, Scotland, and England, but you find them in a few other places in the world. They're played on the sea in a kind of a sandy soil, and it's usually very windy, and it's a particular kind of golf that I find very fascinating. So this is a book about Lynx golf, and I need something a little bit lighter and entertaining for my stay on the island, so I think I'm going to go with that book. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. It's interesting here, looking at your list, there are no overtly, well, one, there's one overtly identifiably Christian volume, and the other four, I guess, belong to the category of general literature, Mm -hmm. not to categorize them necessarily religiously or to think of them as anti-religious. Does that mean anything, say anything, that these are the volumes you're taking? On your next trip, would you take different volumes? Does this reflect some sort of a pattern, or what should we conclude from this? If I got stranded a second time on a desert island, what would I take? If you ever get back on a boat again, you know, the risk is always there. I don't know. I mean, maybe people would, since I teach systematic theology, people would expect me to take Burkhoff and Bovink and Turretin. I don't know. I mean, I've read those volumes a lot. That's sort of what I do for my daily work. And there's a sense in which I think I've sort of absorbed that kind of material. Yeah. And and I'm not sure why I would want to be working over, especially if I'm not lecturing on theology, which I'm presumably not doing on a desert island. I'm not sure why I would need to take those books as well. It's okay to relax. Yeah, I suppose. The books I'm taking are not just for sort of idle entertainment. I mean, except for possibly the golf book, even though I find some intellectual interest there, but at least for the others, I mean, these are serious works of, if not theology per se, at least exploring the human condition. And for me, there is a sense in which I think, you know, if I got rescued from this island, I went back to my work as a theologian and ethicist, I would be profited from having wrestled through these volumes again. And I think I could pick up the systematic theologies again after a year or two on a desert island, and I don't think I'd be far behind, but I think I'd be richer as a person having reflected upon who we are as sinners and the things that we struggle with and the things that we love and the things that we hate. So I'm not sure how much to read into my book selection, except the fact that I I like a very broad range of literature, and I've probably spent a disproportionate amount of time reading theology over the past 20 years, so maybe this would be a time to even things out a little bit. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.